my name is Doc. I am hosting a softball tournament in June. Actually, it will be June 3rd, 4th, and 5th, the first weekend. It's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday event uh, to raise money for Mission 22 to help prevent veteran suicide. Because as you know, 22 veterans a day commit suicide. I personally am a Mission 22 survivor. This June will be 15 years for myself from when I tried to commit suicide. So it's just in my heart to give to Mission 22. I would love for y'all to be a part of this tournament by giving donations. Um, I can be reached by email and it's beard, B-E-A-R-D, bash, B-A-S-H dot softball at gmail.com. I would greatly appreciate as many donations as possible. And it does not have to be $5, $10. It can be 50 cents. All proceeds will go to Mission 22. Amber, what are you drinking today? Amanda, this is day 36. Water. <laughs> Texas water. Ice Texas cold water. Texas water. Ozarka. Yes. Free shout out there for Ozarka. Yes. What are you drinking, Amanda? Well, I currently have a house full of people and I'm hiding out and that requires me to drink peach vodka with peach seltzer. <laughs> Seltzers and vodka. Seltzers and vodka. Your, your two n- number one go-tos. Yes. And when you mix them together, it becomes my number one go-to. Welcome to this episode of Veterans Drinking Vodka. We believe that every veteran has a story to tell, and we are here to tell it. We have found that being a service member was easy, but being a veteran can be very hard. In this episode, we are talking to Jason Brooks. Jason served in the United States Navy from 1998 to 2013 as an aviation technician. How are you doing today, Jason, and what are you drinking? I am doing well, and I'm currently drinking uh, Jack Daniels Winter Jack mixed with some apple juice. Oh, I bet that's delicious. What is that? An apple jack? Is that what they call that? An apple jack? It's it's a good cider. Yeah. Hmm. That Winter Jack is bomb it's like bomb.com i haven't had that i'm not a big jack person though so i'll tell you what it doesn't taste like jack at all it's Mm -hmm. it's straight apple it's its own special blend of deliciousness Hmm. i'll have to give it a whirl when i'm drinking again yes you'll have to wait till next winter (sighs) maybe i could go get some now to store it storing all the other liquor and shit that i can't have right now (laughs) (laughs) i know you're gonna have a sweet bar stocked up for the start of summer i know well maybe (laughs) Depends, depends on how heavy i get back into drinking we'll see we would like to give a huge thanks to Rafa 180. Rafa 180 offers pure medicinal CBD and products made locally. They walk alongside individuals to achieve a healthy lifestyle with options needed by each person. You can learn more about them on Facebook at Rafa CBD, their website www.rafa180.com or email at rafacbd at gmail.com. 
they truly believe your journey matters. All right, Jason, where are you from? And can you tell us a little bit about how your journey started? I'm actually from Charles County, Maryland. Around age 12, we moved to the island that I live at now, Cobb Island in Charles County. Very small island. Let's see, I was in military school from sixth grade to 10th grade. And then went to public school and did the ROTC, JROTC. Did you wild out when you got to public school? Like freedom. Oh, it was it was absolutely well, I was in I was in shell shock the first year because <laughs> man, it was a whole different ballpark and I it took me a while to find my group, my clique to fit in. So, oh, I'm sure you were because it's not like you were private school, it was military school to a public school. Yeah. Yeah. Which is huge. It, yeah. it was. It was a huge leap. And it took me at least, it, yeah, it took me about a year to figure out who I was going to be with. But the problem was, is even though I was going into my sophomore year, they had me in freshman classes because they refused to count my freshman classes. I was taking freshman classes in seventh grade. Yeah. I was, they were advancing us so fast. We so started. then, not only did you have to leave military school and try to find your way, but you were in classes that were like well below your level of where you should be. So you just had nothing to do. Nope. I was bored. Yeah, I could see Acted that. out, got in trouble, started the bad habit of smoking. <laughs> no, is that why you joined the Navy? Yeah, you know, wanted to keep that habit up. <laughs> right? I think of a better branch going to to make that habit stick <laughs> you know what was funny though is so i had an appointment with the air force recruiter and i show up at my appointment time and he's not there so we the hear moment, that story all the time we hear it all I, the time it's like a broken the Navy guys were sitting there and they heard me waiting for this guy so they were like what are you doing it's like i'm waiting for the air force recruiter they're like come on in we're watching full metal jacket so I sat down. We were watching Full Metal Jacket. It was like an hour later. This dude walks in, and then he comes over and he was like, "Hey, I'm sorry. I was running behind. I had car problem. Can they come in and see?" You? I was like, "No, dude. I'm watching a movie, and I got an appointment with the Navy tomorrow." I came back in the next day, signed with the Navy, and left the three weeks later. There you go. I feel like recruiters need to hear this podcast. Yes, yeah. because we have had so many people that they went. To go, whether they had appointment or they just, their whole family were Marines. And so they were going to join the Marines and they go to talk to, to the Marine recruiters and they're not there, but the Army was or the Navy was. And so they end up joining that. Yeah. Recruiters. It's in the office that gets there. We know you have a cake ass job. At least fucking do it. <laughs> it's not like you got to do anything. You're sitting there. Full metal jacket, just waiting for the air force recruits to like not have anything to do. Sometimes I wonder if they have like little side bets, like in the offices, like, Hey, I have an appointment and I'm not going to be here. Snatch him up type of thing. And then the next time you want to go do something, I'll get your next appointment. Yeah. I feel like they're probably bets. <laughs> they have side bets and shit. Right. Okay. So, Jason, you going to military school and then public school ROTC 
And then you told us why you joined the Navy. Were you destined to join the military? Do you come from a military family? Actually, no. Um, I had I had actually gotten very interested in the fire department and was I had every intention of going out west uh, Montana area because I have family out there and try to become a smoke jumper. That was what I wanted to become. And then like I I was driving down the street and I saw the recruiter station. I was like, I wonder if I could become a firefighter for the military. And that's what I signed up to do. And when we got, when I got to boot camp, they were like, yeah, you can't be a firefighter for the Navy. Uh, That ranks full. I'm like, what do you mean that rate's full? Like, what does that mean? They were like, yeah, you got to pick from another job. So I literally looked at a rating badge board. I could see all the oh, different wow. badges. I made fun of AEs because it looks like a little flying basketball. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm looking around and I saw one that looked cool, which was AT. And I opened up the folder, aviation electronics technician, you know, nine months in Pensacola Beach, Florida for training, you know, con- air conditioned work environment. Oh, pfft, sign me up. And that's how I picked my job. <laughs> oh, wow. That's yeah. a fabulous story. That is. I went aviation. I knew I was going to go aviation because I knew that school was in Pensacola. And I had a high enough ASVAB score to go AC. That's how I wound up as an AC. Otherwise, I didn't know shit about air traffic control. Yeah, they they sat there and uh, my recruiter. It was funny because we he worked with me for probably about a week testing me my ASVAB because he was like, dude, they're going to push for you to go nuke. He says, I'm looking at your practice ASVABs. They're going to push for you to go nuke. I was like, I don't want to get nuke. Good choice. He, he was like, all right, so this is where we, this is the areas we got to work in so you don't go nuke. And, man, I was in there two hours every day taking practice tests to make sure I didn't score in certain whatever. So I didn't go can buy that Air Force recruiter's office. Every day. Every day. Wave it. like, Shoo. Did you bring him some cookies? Like, sorry for your bad luck. <laughs> bring them a condolence card sorry for your loss (laughs) yes that's something i would have done all right so prior to starting this podcast we discussed that you were actually at whidbey island did you have any other duty stations besides whidbey island and did you have a favorite one so once i left pensacola i went to i graduated number three in my class they told us the top three get to pick where we get to go so I picked Rota, Spain, Sigonella, Italy, or the USS Enterprise. They sent me to NAS Oceana Shore Duty. Oh, they sent you yep. to the armpit. Yep. Ooh. Did you get to pick, Amanda, did you get to pick where you went? Kind of. So the way they did it for my generation to get orders was, they knew we had a certain number, and I, I couldn't tell you how many what that number was. Eight, maybe. I think there was eight of us in the class that needed orders. So they sent out eight sets of orders, and then we went in one at a time based on our grades. So, like, the person at the top of the class went in and got the choice out of eight orders where they wanted to go, and the person at the bottom of the list got what was ever left over. And 
I was the only female in my class and I wanted to go to sea because I joined the Navy to travel. So I was like, well, the best way to do that is to go to sea. And we had orders to the boxer. And I was like, I want to go to the boxer because I was number two or three. I was close to the top and the boxer was still available. And they were like, nope, no female billet. Mm. Oh, That's bullshit. Right. That sucks. So that automatically, and then the next ship was a carrier and there was only two ships in our whole sets of orders. And the next one was a carrier and I don't remember which one it was, but they were like, nope, no female billet. So that automatically took two off the list for me. So then my options were Whitby, Jacksonville, There's New another Jersey. One. Could have gone to New Jersey. I don't know. It was some garbage. So I ended up at Whitby Island. We had three. There were three sailors. They were, and we were all females and there were three choices. It was, um, staying in Pensacola, the Reagan or Meridian, Mississippi. And I said, I'm been in Pensacola, not staying here though. I love it. Um, and I'm not going to Meridian, Mississippi. So put me on the Reagan. Yeah. And I went to San Diego. That was mine. Nice. And then, okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to distract. Go ahead. So you went to shithole first. I went to shore duty and then I did my time there. And when I came back up for orders, they had, what was it? It was red of Spain. It wasn't Saganella. It was, it was another European Bill. destination. Yeah. And then the, George Washington was just coming out. And I was like, here's my chance. I could be on a brand new ship. So George Washington was my number one pick. And I got orders to Whidbey Island. Huh. Yep. So I flew up there. you can go on a boat, but can you really complain about going to Whidbey Island? No, no, not at all. The, my biggest complaint about Whidbey Island is I took I took a week and a half leave to drive up there. I got there. I checked into my command September first or second. September 9th. I was flying to Saudi Arabia and then two days later, September 11th happened. So my first deployment, my first time really away from home because Virginia beach is only three hours away. So my first deployment, uh, dude, I was, I was scared, scared. Especially being in the Middle East. Like that's extra. It it was one thing to be stateside going through that, like here, Cause I'm originally from New York. And so the city was, I mean, that was three hours away from where I lived. So it was a little close to home then, but I couldn't imagine being completely deployed into like, you're in the middle East where these people that are attacking our country are at, and you're in the military. We were supporting operation Southern watch, which watched the Southern no fly zone. So we were 200 miles away from Iraq. Wow. And we were sitting there. The army guys got all hyper. I mean, it, you could tell they were all hyper because they got to pull out all the big toys and all oh, that yeah. stuff. But, and, and it was really awkward because we had, so they shut down the base to all uh, TCN, third country nationals. They shut down the base to all of them for like a week. Then they started bringing them back and all the TVs, every TV all around the base. Of course, all we were watching was what was going on yeah what was going on and so the 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 defects were 
it, they were uh, twins. Like you had this, this half and this half. So if this half was open in the morning, this half would be open in the evening. But they still had all their TVs on. And as we're cutting through one of the empty defects, several of the, the TCNs are sitting there laughing and pointing. And it was like, yeah, we, we're really not liked over here. <laughs> like, right. ah. But yeah. That was a different Hold world on. in 2001. It was completely different. I was so in high school. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it was, it was completely, and even, I was in Pensacola, like, I had just gotten to A school, we had classed up, we had been classed up for a week, we hadn't even taken our first test yet for air traffic control when all that went down, so. Um, How long did that extend you in Pensacola? It didn't. Oh, they, you still did your, graduated on time and everything? No. Nice. Yeah, because they didn't shut the schoolhouse down after that happened, we just changed, like, how we got to school. Hmm. So instead of like marching in formation, we had to go like two by two. We had to uh, do some of that stuff. It really didn't change that much about our day-to-day A school life. Did y'all still have Liberty though? I don't know why we've never talked about this, but y'all still got to go like off phase yeah. three, off base Liberty. Yep. Interesting. Yep. So they had it locked down for a while, but that, that because I was so new to Pensacola, I was still in phase one Liberty when they locked everything down. And so that didn't really affect anything that we did. And then so when phase two came around and then phase three, like everything was normal. Like I was able to have my car down there during phase three, like I had it shipped in. So I had mm-hmm. transportation, like we were at the beach every weekend. Oh, you were a hot commodity with a car. Right? Right. Yeah, I did what I wanted. And yeah, we went to like New Orleans for New Year's and we were all over the place. The only thing that changed was they were pretty strict on gate security because, and then they stopped letting civilians come on base to Pensacola because, you know, Pensacola for a long time was an open base because they have the museum and the golf course and some of those things there that the public, like the general public was allowed to go to. And so they shut that down and that didn't open while I was there. Like that was still shut down to public. Like, I think it still was when I think it is permanently like not public escorted on because like when I was there, I mean, there was, yeah, it wasn't open. We went through security. And so that was, I started a school, like I said, a week before September 11 and I got to Whidbey Island in January like mid mid January, I think maybe the end of January, beginning of February. Cause I didn't take leave over Christmas. Cause I graduated a school January 15th. So shit didn't really get real in my world until I got to Whidbey Island. And that was just prior to the shock and awe campaign. That's when we really saw the change because we had to change how we operated on the airfield and we had to change the types of training missions we were doing or assisting with for the different fighter jets and the carrier support we offered being the shore duty station closest to the Pacific ocean there. So that's where we really saw the post nine 11 change was after I got out of a school. I can remember they, uh, when we were getting ready to leave Saudi, we were the last commercial, they paid all of our tickets and I think it, the airline we were using was ATA or something like that. So we were the last commercial airliner out of um, Saudi Arabia before 
they went in and started bombing. Yeah, before that shock and awe campaign. Mm-hmm. That was a uh, interesting. Yeah, that's when shit really got real. I think for a lot of us, especially in the Navy, uh, was that that campaign in the beginning of 2002. I know that for a lot of like the Army and the Marine Corps and the people that were over their boots on the ground, it got real a lot sooner. But for those of us stateside dealing with the aviation side of things, I think that that campaign is the one that that made it as real as it did. It was also interesting coming home because when we came home, of course, we're we're wearing civilian clothes. I mean, they, they have us. Oh, they like, didn't want you. They yeah, didn't want us advertising anything. Yeah. So we came home. It was kind of it was kind of weird. Again, coming back from my first from my first deployment, only thing I've ever seen are like movie scenes where you see the military guys coming off the planes and uniforms, and everybody's clapping. And here we are. We're just nobodies yeah. walking through this, trying to yeah. keep a low profile whatever but you can spot someone oh, who's in military and civilian clothes from a mile away but whatever makes them feel better about shipping you around all right so you went to whidbey island and then where did you go after whidbey island so whidbey island they would fly me they flew me to germany i spent about a year in germany between deployments i spent about a year in saudi between deployments and so i, I basically only spent about a year in Whidbey. I left in 2004. I got out of active duty, went to reserves, joined the fire department. Then I went back to, they, they moved me to a command VAQ 209 here out of Andrews. So that was, that was my first time with a squadron. And that was my first time working a level instead of eye level. And that was completely different. Like oh, that sure. whole, yeah, that whole world was different. So spending growing up in Maryland and stationed on the East coast, but you also spent time on the West coast, even though it was PNW, but still West coast. Nonetheless, I, do you I, have a preference? Yeah. Uh, PNW. PNW. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, when I came up to leave, when my orders were coming up for EAOS, I told the recruiter, I said, I'll sign up for six years. You give me any duty station. And they were like, nope, we're going to send you back to Oceana. Deuces, I'm out. I don't blame you on that one. Not one bit. Oceana is not a fun place to be. I'm right with you. Another one for the West Coast? That's right. Cheers. West Coast is the best coast. Cheers to the West Coast. It is. Yep. Especially the Pacific Northwest. Get your drink and cheers. I'm doing a real cheers, damn it. Yeah, I love the Pacific Northwest. It's on my bucket list. We're going one day, Amanda. You're taking me. Yep, I'll show you all the cool stuff. got a lot of things to do. It's going to have to be a two to four week trip. So then out of all of the cool places you went to and the duty stations you were at, which one was your favorite? Germany. Germany. Hands down, bar none, 100% Germany. Did you get into uh, a lot of trouble in Germany? No, actually, we never really got in trouble. There was a couple nights, well, a couple mornings that we were leaving the bar because our bars don't close until like five o'clock in the morning. And we are throwing, because over there, of course, you have the euro. And so it's the dollar and $2 are coins. Yeah. And we're throwing $2 
euros at the taxi cab driver telling him we're vampires and he needs to drive faster because we <laughs> we need to protect the base before the sun up. That's fantastic. Yeah, that, that's about the worst that we ever did. Um, I actually flew my mom out there for her 50th birthday. Oh, that's cool. Yep, I, I got some leave, put in leave, and uh, flew her out there, and it was all a surprise. She had no idea until when she finally found out, my dad already had her bags packed. Like, she found out and was gone. And <laughs> so I brought her out there, and we, we spent a, a week just doing tours and stuff like that of, oh, that's so cool. of Germany. Scale Executive Search is a veteran-owned and operated search firm serving aerospace, tech, and startups. They've managed to set themselves apart by not only understanding the job market, but also ensuring their candidates and clients are invested in not only their careers, but also themselves and their families. I know that you have an awesome sea story that you can tell us today. Because every sailor does. Every sailor does. So when we were in Germany, a lot of us carried burner phones because the wireless networks and all that was different over there. So when we knew we were coming up for a tour over there, we would get the SIM cards put back in. We'd get and start dialing the girls. The girls over there absolutely loved the American guys. It was great. So you go to a nightclub, and a nightclub over there is completely different than over here. It's it's basically four hundred people in a closet. I mean, <laughs> they, they just, uh, it was crowded, bumping, but. Man, I can remember going through and you text this girl. Nope, she's not. Nope. Hey, yeah. Okay, cool. I know where I'm sleeping for the next, you know, three months. <laughs> I'm over here. <laughs> and that's basically what you did is we would hit up these girls and bounce from house to house to house to house. And I would expect nothing less from a sailor. But, you know, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Being a sailor. Cheers to being a sailor. Cheers to being a sailor. <laughs> it's been a minute since we've got to interview a sailor. When we were over in Saudi Arabia, of course, we had camel spiders. We had scorpions. Epic battles between squadrons and eye level, you know, as to whose critter is going to win. But we had a guy, and he absolutely loved snakes. Ooh. I mean loved snakes so he would be the stupid one going out after these adder snakes you know the venomous ones that are hiding all over the place he'd, he'd go out there and try to catch them so we told him that we had caught one the problem is is even though he loved snakes he had he had some of the worst arachnophobia i've ever seen in my life i mean you told the boy there's a there's a spider over there, and he would he would go the opposite way. But he liked to play with venomous snakes. Yeah, but he liked dealing with venomous snakes. Perfect. Hmm. See, I can completely understand that though, because I'm not a spider person, but I can. Yeah, I'm I not a spider feel- person, but I'm not. Uh, I'm I'm telling you, if you 
we'd walk well, up and just blow on the back of his neck like, snake any day. in a snake pit, and he would freak. <laughs> so we had taken a camel spider, and we put it in this trash can, and we put a lid on it. Now, camel spiders can jump. Yes. So we told him we'd caught the snake, and he comes over there, and he opens up that lid, and that spider jumps up. Oh, my God. Oh, he freaking made it almost all the way to the other side of the base before he stopped. <laughs> I'm not laughing. I feel so bad for that man. Oh, man. Y'all are laughing. I am. I would have played a joke like that for sure. Oh my, oh my god. god. Oh my god. Yes. Oh, yep. that's greatness. Yep. It was uh it was it was a blast doing <laughs> doing stuff like that. And once we figured out what what triggered him. You know, we it never ended. Yeah, he was easy prey. Yeah, we would take people. Uh, you know, everybody. Had, of course, CDs were the thing back then. MP3 players didn't exist. Right. So we would find people's CDs hanging out their their CD books, <laughs> and we'd box them up and mail it back to them while we're there. And of course, all the mail leaves Saudi, goes to Europe, goes to the U.S goes back to Whidbey Island. Whidbey Island says, no, they're on deployment. <laughs> and it goes back over to Europe, back down to Saudi. So they'd be gone for like a month before they'd get their CDs back. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, I never that. thought of that prank. Oh, yeah. Weird. We had one of our guys get caught. Of course, you know, um, alcohol is restricted. You can't have alcohol. They had to quit selling grape juice at the mini marts because of the sailors, because we were making homemade hooch. <laughs> of course you were. Cheers to hooch. Cheers to hooch. Cheers. Cheers. That sailor hooch right there. Oh, yeah. Nope. Leave it to the sailors. <laughs> we always did what was wrong. <laughs> All right. So, Jason eventually though you do have to get out of the service yes you have to leave the inappropriate shenanigans behind us no actually no um i joined the fire department which is about as close as you can get to the military as far as shenanigans and stupid stunts active duty shenanigans behind and we have to go from that transition of being a service member to being a veteran how was your transition? Um, it was actually, I looked out as far as making the transition. So when I got out of active duty in 2004, I came home. I already had my um, emergency medical technician certificate, certificate. So when I came home, I just walked into you know, an ambulance transport company got picked up, no problem. And then the very first time I applied for a fire department, I got hired. The problem I had is people try to compare the fire department to the military. And I'm sitting there like, no, you guys, y'all guys do some stupid stuff, but this is nowhere near strict like a military 
And so that took a little bit of adjusting. And I was a little bit more abrasive, I'll say, when I came out of the Navy. My dark humor was, I had to, I had to tune my dark humor down That's just a little bit. Firefighters are plenty dark, but I did have to tone it down just a little bit. But yeah, it wasn't too terribly bad. The thing that sucked was the reserves. Uh, that was the worst mistake of my life. Um, and not because of the people, not because of the deployments, not because of the work. I loved all three of those, but the command. Yeah. And it just Commands made me make or break you. They do. This command, this particular command had a horrible, horrible retention rate. And they couldn't figure out why. And it was like, well, when you go on deployment to, you know, Afghanistan and the chiefs and the officers end up with all the cool toys and the workers get left with tents and ACs that don't work. Like I, I was shell shocked with that because in Whidbey Island, when we went on deployment, man, we're the ones who got everything catered to us. Because we're the ones doing all the work. The right. chiefs would go without just so that we could have something good. Yeah. And the squadron was completely different. Wow. You were like, what is happening right now? It was a shell shock, shell shock type of moment. Um, and I never really adjusted to it well. I, I, I came in and here I am. I'm a senior second from the active duty Navy side. And now I'm just a freaking second class mop boy, basically, that shows up two, one week in a month, two weeks a year. Yeah. And it, it just, it never really sat with me. When I got out, I was a golden second. Yeah. When I got out and it's like, you never got that, you never got that, that uh, respect, at least not from the, the people above. You, right. you, were just, you were just a nobody. Yeah, they're like, who are you? Right. And you're like, I'm somebody. And they're like, no, you're not. Exactly. Uh, you know, if you weren't one of their selected chosen golden angels. and If you weren't an ass kisser. Exactly. <laughs> we just had a conversation. Leadership has such a huge impact on how your military life is and how your military career is. Whether you do your three years, four years, five years, whether you re-enlist or not, whether you stay in your rate or want to cross rate, all of those things is your command and your leadership. And when it's so shitty because you work for your rank, you work for your promotions instead of kissing ass, they don't like you. No. And then you, your career suffers. Yeah. From that it, tremendously. I know Amanda can attest to it. And oh, yeah. I know from my personal experience. Yeah, there's definitely still a culture of good old boys in the military. Yeah. Even when they first tried Stay Navy, that whole program when it came out in what was it like 2012? I guess that one rolled out. It, that just made it worse because we started rolling out and kicking out guys that could tear down the entire plane and rebuild it in mm -hmm. two nights. But we were keeping the guy that I got performed jacked up my back because he couldn't count the freaking three. Yeah. 
it wasn't even performed to serve. It was reduction. It was a reduction in force situation where they basically said, we don't have the quota to keep you as an E6 in your rate. You have to pick another rate. And then, so you pick another rate and they're like, yeah, we don't have quota in any of those rates that you chose either. So we're going to open it up to the entire Navy. And then the entire Navy is like, no, we don't have quota for you either. And then you get a letter that says 30 days general discharge. And I was like, hold the phone. Like, you're not giving me a general discharge. If you want to kick me out or lay, like, lay me off for whatever reason, like, that's fine. I'll, I was fine in the Navy. I'll be okay doing something else. But you're not going to give me a general discharge for 10 years of good service. Right. And so that, that turned into a whole fiasco. Yeah, my, uh, my, my last command in Afghanistan, 2010, I hurt my back. Um, packing up to come home, actually. It, it was stupid. So I worked on the EA-6B Prowler. So we had the, the Prowlers. Y'all, God, I love those Prowlers. Man, they were cool as shit. Yeah. And you could never mistake one because you heard it coming long before you ever saw it. <laughs> oh, man. Glorious. The sound of freedom right there. Exactly. Is that your favorite aircraft? Mine? No, but it's it's close. It's up there. Yeah. I know we've talked about them a couple times. Yeah. It just happened to be like that was Whidbey Island was P3s and Prowlers, and the Prowler is way cooler than a P3. So right. almost anything is <laughs> Unless, oh, do you remember, Jason, when were you up there when those pilots got busted for doing those hops to Canada and they were loading up with drugs? No. No, I didn't hear about that one. Yeah, that was a big deal. Like they were, because you know we had a uh, an agreement with Canada that our aircraft could go over there and do like touch and goes and training yeah. missions, and then come back to the states and not have to file an ICAO flight plan or you know any kind of special clearances or anything. We just had an agreement with them because it was just like right over the border. So they'd hop over, they do some touch and goes, they might stop over for fuel, and then come back to Whidbey Island. So. What they were doing is on the fuel stops, they were picking up a bunch of drugs and bringing them They're back. People so dumb. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, they got away with it for a long time, and they were yeah. stacking them in the P3s and then unloading them in the states. Yeah, they got in a lot of trouble. Yeah. I don't know if that was ever made. I don't know. You're out now. That was years yeah. ago. Whatever. Yeah, it was a it was a whole big ordeal though because it was. We almost lost all of our clearances to go up into Canada and do that because of it. So, yeah, I, I, when I was there, we had the one, we had the one plane crash into the mountain. Yeah, I remember that. That and oh man, I can remember that because we were all of us felt that one, and yeah. it's like, you know, we sat there, and I used to keep a logbook. Um, one of the stupid little green books. Every piece of gear I ever worked on that I ever signed my name to went in this stupid logbook. And it's like, man, like, could it have been something I worked on? Was it something that I did? I, because we had no clue as to why. Yeah, why a modern plane should crash into a mountain? That one was a bad one. Yeah, I don't. There was no survivors on that one, was there? Yeah, you know, it just disintegrated into the mountain. It was, yep. it was just gone. Yeah, I remember that one. 
yeah, they, uh, I remember those, Yeah. but you had to overcome that. And then, so I joined the fire department when I was out there. So it, you had the Navy stuff going on, but then in the fire department, I was running Navy guys. Mm. Some of them were in your own shop and that was the hardest ones. That was the hardest ones when you run, run to your buddy or you run into your neighbor. Uh, I had a neighbor who, he was a good sailor. Um, he just got stupid. Mm-hmm. And so he went to his command and said, hey, look, I, uh, I screwed up. I did some drugs. I need help. And they heard I did some drugs and you're out the door. Yeah. And he, he committed suicide because yeah, he didn't want to go home and face his family. Yeah. And that, that's that whole, your, your command can either make you or break you. Absolutely. Because if he would have been a good old boy, they would have got him the help he needed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, yeah. and that was the worst part. There was zero reason that, you know, he, he didn't pop. He didn't get caught. Mm-hmm. He went and told them, look, I need help. Too bad. So sad. Battle, I can't do alone. I need help. Right. And they were like, nope. Yep. But if he would have been someone that they like thought was worthy of their time, he would have got the help he needed. Yeah. And it, I've you seen know, that more than once. I, I found less of that at Whidbey. Like, I really feel that Whidbey was a lot more even of a playing ground. You still had bad commands out there, but. It just seemed like everybody was on the exact same page. Well, um, it's such a small community up there. Like you worked and played and all of that, all in, like all of your kids went to the same school and right. it was a much tighter knit community, even Naval community, because you weren't in an area where there was any other branches or any other, like you were almost, I don't want to say isolated, but you were in your own little naval world of oak harbor washington like maybe someone lived in port townsend or you know maybe someone lived in anacortes but for the most part everyone lived right there in oak harbor and they worked right there in oak harbor yeah and as opposed to some of these bigger metroplexes of military personnel whidbey island and the united states navy were so secluded from the rest of that and so it was a blessing and a curse yeah like you would run into the people that you worked with at the grocery store or the gas station or your kids went to the same daycare or they went to the same schools or you all played on the same softball league or kickball yeah, softball or, yeah. league, soccer league, whatever. And so you were just not even within a single squadron, like the entire base just kind of all lived and worked together. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's, it's not like that anywhere else. Yeah. And that was definitely, <laughs> that was definitely one of the things that I loved, loved about that area. Yeah. Yeah. I, I came back to, I came back to the squadron down here. And when I got hurt in Afghanistan, they, they didn't file proper paperwork because they wanted to win the golden wrench award. Oh no. So, because they didn't file the proper paperwork, like they uh, they basically refused to help me after I hurt my back, and then uh, yeah, 
that just made that just made life even more miserable and right that's such a shady way to do business exactly it was what it was i i tell people all the time i don't miss the, the navy i absolutely don't miss the politics i don't miss the commands i don't miss the leadership i don't miss any of that i miss the deployments i miss the guys and i would drop everything i could right now if i could go under deployment with a good set of guys oh yeah in a heartbeat right there with you so how are you doing now every day i wake up and i have to remind myself why i'm um and i say that i say that because four years ago i couldn't answer that and in 2010 when i got hurt of course, they sent me to medical. Medical quickly determined I had PTSD. From there, they figured out I had depression. And later on, anxiety would come in. Um, in 2016, you know, I'm being treated for all this, but not really, like, nobody really cared. Like, it, it just, okay, they kind of threw some medicine at you talk to this person once every four or five months and that's what we're going to call good. And so you were never on the same medicine for more than three months because they would change it up the next time they had a visit with you. But in 2016, I suffered a multifocal concussion um, after I was, I was skiing and I fell down a mountain. Uh, it, it, apparently it looked pretty cool when I fell, but <laughs> the, is there any video footage? Uh, no, thank God. <laughs> Dang. I was but definitely going to request it. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, I don't remember much. Like, I remember my skis giving out from underneath me, and then I remember looking up going, ow. <laughs> I'm sure it happened rather quickly. Yeah, yeah. But they determined, and it, what was worse was, so I fell. My skis are gone. My poles are gone. One of my gloves is gone. I'm just like, I'm all discombobulated. And uh, my buddy skis up to me. He was like, dude, are you okay? People on the, on the ski lift are like screaming, are you okay? And uh, I skied for the rest of the day. Like we skied to, to my car. I picked up some ibuprofen. We went skiing and skied for the rest of the day. I stayed at the lodge for the next three days. Wow. Um, hanging out. I drove home with my family in the car. And the next morning, I couldn't get out of bed. And that's when they found out that I had suffered a, a multifocal concussion. That actually was the catalyst. Um, when I had that concussion, concussions, TBIs can work against your PTSD. And that's what mine did. It, it exacerbated everything. We've so, had that conversation before too. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, there's a couple of studies that I've been trying to get up into just so that I can see, you know, what exactly is going on in here. Like I know what I feel, but I want to know electronically. Like I want to see the numbers. I want to see the cool little right. graphs and wear the stupid little hat, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I went about a year later, we had, 
I, I also volunteered. Like I worked for a fire department, but then I volunteered at my home to fire department, you know, right here. And we had a call that involved two friends. Neither one of them made it. So I had that and it, that one kind of, that we worked hard. God, we worked hard to try to save them. And it was on the hottest day of the damn year. And it just, it was miserable. It was three hours of pure freaking misery. So then two days later, I'm at work and we get a call for a vet who committed suicide. His wife and him had gotten into an argument. She, she went to leave to get space. She walked out the door and heard a gunshot. It just, it happened just that quick. And then we get back from that call and I come to find out that one of my mentors, one of my, one of the people that got me into the fire department died. And so I had those three things happen. Bam, bam, bam. They say things happen in threes. It, it, it really did. But about three or four days later, I was sitting there holding a gun to my head and wanted to end it. I wanted, I didn't, it's not that I wanted to die. I really didn't want to die. I wanted the pain, the anger, the hurt to stop. And I just, you know, I had two kids. I had two beautiful boys. I've got a loving wife, got a nice house, great job. I wasn't thinking about any of that. Like, that was not my thought. And I've always said that, you know, I don't like suicides. Never liked them. I, I don't care for it. I, and then to turn around and then be in that situation where I'm sitting there looking at my gun going, I hate suicides, but I want to commit suicide. It, it was really hard. It was really dark. And the only thing that really, that really kept me here was the thought of, I know who's going to come and have to see me because my wife is going to call 911. And I know who's going to be on that truck because I've trained half of them. And I did not want to, them to have PTSD because I would have given my PTSD to them. It's how I felt. And I didn't want to do that. I, I felt like, all right, I've got this. Uh, I've got a man up and I've got to own this because if I, I give this in to anybody else, they might, they might commit suicide. And then the chain doesn't stop. So I have to stop this chain. And then I called my therapist and two weeks later, I was sitting in Martinsburg, West Virginia at the VA hospital there for an inpatient uh, treatment and uh, met some really cool guys, people that I'm still friends with. Learned a little bit on how to manage myself at least enough to where I wasn't suicidal anymore. And then as soon as I got out of that, the fire department also has their own rehab center. And I went to that. 
I spent three months, uh, two and a half months in Martinsburg, three months in um, the one here in Brandywine. And that one, that one kind of hit harder because we were able to pinpoint sticking points. And I had to write out like all my traumas. I had to write out each one that really hurt. And I wrote out my list and I gave it to my wife. My wife didn't know the last one was me being suicidal. She had no clue. So she found out by reading my list that I was giving to my teachers. And of course she breaks down because she's like, why didn't you tell me? And I was like, I, I screamed it. I said, I was screaming for it. And she says, what do you mean? I said, I was screaming for you. I said, loss of interest, sleeping all day, not wanting to do anything, working my ass off just to be at work and not to be at home. Yeah. I said, I was screaming. And of course that hurt her, but I had to say it, if that makes sense. So now I've come out and we finally got a good regimen of meds. And every day I still have to wake up and go, why am I waking up? Yeah. I've got kids. I got a vacation coming up. I've got, you know, I got to make sure the boys are fed. And I, I don't make big goals anymore. Like I used to set big ambitious goals. I don't, I don't make them anymore. I make daily goals. Yeah. Hey, I got to get up and get a shower. Yep. Hey, I got to get up and feed the boys. I have to make dinner, you know, and I make those little goals. And that's how I literally survive every single day. They say, especially for those of us that struggle with our day-to-day -day emotions, even a lot of times we don't even understand what those emotions are. Yeah. We have to go day by day. And if day by day doesn't work, then we have to go hour by hour. And if that doesn't work, then we have to go minute by minute. Just get to the next minute. Just get to the next minute. Just get to the next hour. Just get through the day to get to the next day. Like, don't worry about next week or next year. Just get to the next day. Yes. I mean, it's such, it's such a mental, it's a mental health thing. And it's, comparable to addiction and when you're in recovery you have to you can't make big goals when you're in recovery you have to make the little goals and like you just said Amanda sometimes it's not day by day sometimes it's hour by hour minute by, by minute and then you have to take those little tiny goals and be fucking proud for every single one of them yes every single one no time is too small to be something to be proud about something that you've accomplished whether that's taking a shower or cooking dinner and I, I wanted to backtrack a little bit Jason about suicide and stuff and like what you were saying you you were against suicide but there was just so much pain that you wanted to end it. and I think that that is 95% of why suicides happen. People don't want to die, but there's so much pain. And the only way to make it stop 
in their heads is to not be here. Exactly. And that's what I hope Amanda and I are reaching people and, and they hear this episode with you, Jason, and they hear all of the different struggles that all of us have gone through, all of us have dealt with to know that you're not alone. You're never alone. I didn't even learn how to communicate right. that until, until I went to the rehab and they, we literally had, we literally had communication classes. Yeah. Like, you need to open up. This is what you need to say. And it, it, it was really dumbed down, but that's what you needed because yeah. I couldn't retain, you know, complicated, complicated thoughts. Right. It was right. Hey, dummy, tell your wife you feel this. And that, but that's why, like, as veterans, whether you are diagnosed with PTSD or you saw crazy trauma or real things, because a lot of your things didn't happen until you were out. But it's so important to to reach out and talk to someone, anyone at any time to know so that if you have to go to rehab, you have to go to rehab rehab. If you have to go to therapy, you're going to therapy. If you have to take a communications class, but you are able to, the sooner you can address that so that that pain can subside. So you're not sitting there with a gun in your mouth to your head, wanting the pain to stop. And that's one of those things I I tell people, I, I tell people a lot because I've never despite what my parents, what my family may want, I've never, ever put up a smoke screen about what's going on mental health-wise once I had that issue. Yeah. I haven't told everybody that I wanted to commit suicide because some people just don't need to know that. But I put out there, hey, look, I'm having a bad day. It's okay to have a bad day. You know, it's okay yeah. to not be okay. It 110%. is. And I, I tell people all the time that recognizing you are having an issue is the key. Like yeah. my wife can sit there and look at me and ask, me, you okay? Yes. Yep. Okay. Are you okay? No, I'm not. Well, what's wrong? I can't tell you because I don't know what's wrong. Yeah. But I'm not right. Something's wrong and I need to. That sounds like the exact conversations that I have with my current situation. Because he's 100% a civilian. Like he doesn't know and he doesn't understand and he doesn't get it. But he'll look at me and he'll be like, something's not right. What's wrong? And I'm like, no, something isn't right. Something is wrong. But I cannot tell you what it is. Yes. I not Because I don't know myself. Or and that's okay right. to not know though. Yeah. Like you don't we don't always have to know. It's just knowing that something's not okay. Yeah. Right. And and if you knew like now my life has become so much better since attending those classes because I can sit there and go, you know what? Today's not a good day. And then I can start I I can start processing it and going. Right. What what exactly happened? Like, why would I be in this funk today? 
And sometimes I can work it out. Sometimes I can figure it out. Sometimes I can't. But because I know, hey, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not doing hot today. It gives me that chance. Yeah. To, my wife. Sit down. What was my trigger? What right. put me here? What kind of put me in this funk? Like how how did this happen? When you're able to start recognizing the signs earlier, because you're acknowledging the fact that you have an issue, even if you don't know what it is, then you can kind of narrow down. Maybe not what the issue is, but what the triggers were to get you into that mindset. Correct. Exactly. Do you find that? having a routine helps and that if that routine is disrupted, it makes your day harder. Not really. Oh, okay. Not really. Um, that's what I'm struggling with right now. That's why I asked that. My, I guess because between the Navy and the fire department, mm-hmm. I never had really a set routine because yeah. I could be taking a shower and we get a call and you're out. Go. Yeah. I guess. Um, I guess routine is the wrong way to ask that question because I don't necessarily have a set routine per se, but I know no, when you I don't. go to bed what my day should look like the next day. Whether that's even in the fire department, like I know, like if I was in the fire department and I know from this time to this time I'm at work and I could be taking a shower and get a call and that, like that's where my mindset is for that moment type of deal. So like when I go to bed tonight, I have a general idea of what my day is going to look like tomorrow and how I perceive it should go. And if something derails that, I have found that I've really been struggling with that. So I, um, so I guess it's not a routine. I guess it's just kind of a, yeah, a a, a plan what it is, but yeah. Uh, so my wife and I have done, is we use Google Calendar. Mm-hmm. It's linked up between both of our phones so that if I input something that she inputs something that shows up on each other's screen, if those aren't right, mm-hmm. like if I don't have that one right or she doesn't input something or even if I don't input something and I find out last minute, I freak. Like yeah. I do get that anxiety. Which is not something I had when I was in the service, but now that I'm out, oh yeah, like, like I struggle, I struggle with that. Like I need to know, and even if it's a couple hours before the change, like I just need to know the change. And I'm a why person; I need to know why it's changing. Yeah. So I don't know if that's something that you deal with as well, but I don't necessarily do with the why. It's just so. I might have a battle plan in my head. All right, this is the goals that I want to accomplish. You know, this is this is the mood I'm in. And so I get hit up with that last minute. Oh, well, let's go shopping. Yeah, and it changes your whole battle plan. Oh, yeah, it does. And, and your mood, you're like, like, wait a minute, no, I'm not. I'm not in a good mood today. Like I don't want to deal with people. And now I've got to go out in public and it just sets off a whole roller coaster. Yeah. No, I'm right so, there. I go through those same things. Like I get you for sure. But all yeah, right. So difficult. we've, we've been chatting for a little while. So let me ask you if you had advice for anyone that was either getting ready to become a veteran or someone that's been struggling 
for a little while in their life as a veteran, what advice would you give them? So if you're getting ready to get out, you should already be talking to the VA. Medical copy, medical record in hand, not the electronic copy, not wait for a copy, not what they give you. You can check out your medical record, go make photocopies, and give your medical record back. More than one. Make more than one because the one that you do make, you lose it. Yeah, absolutely. I think I made four copies. Um, I have my original copy that I made from 10 years ago. Yeah. Seven years ago. Yeah. Take those everywhere with me. And then take that to the, when you go to the VA, you hand them that medical record right then and there. And this way it all gets inputted, it all gets done. And then they can start filing those claims and filing your ratings. So that that's one thing, you know, if you're getting ready to get out, you need to do it. If you're already out, it surprises me how many veterans, I, I don't know if it's pride or, or what, but there are so many veterans that refuse to use the VA. And, and uh, trust me, the VA is all sorts of jacked up, mm-hmm. but there are advantages to it. Um, and once you learn the system, you learn how to work with it and around it and stuff. It took me 10 years to put my claim in. Yeah. 10 years. Not, not because I didn't want to use the VA system or anything like that, but because I didn't have the military guidance and I was scared of it. Yep. And that was, that was something that I went through. And then once I did it, I was like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I this Ten years ago, like, and it's great. Like they, I don't even have to buy vitamins from Walmart anymore. Like they just send them to me. Dude, my my, they give me my melatonin for night. Oh, dang, that's great. I don't have to do nothing. That's <laughs> at your house, like, hey, your drugs are here. Like, oh. <laughs> uh, I've got a, I've got a picture of. The last time I got a shipment of drugs and I needed everything that ha- that particular, well, I've got a 40 foot travel trailer and the receipt, you know, the stupid little receipts of all the drug interactions was 40 feet. Yeah. I was like, wow. Wild. And you know, it comes in that little white package and you're like. Oh. Yep. And you can tell how, how many meds you got by feeling how thick of the, the paper is, you know, like, ah. Uh. <laughs> I know it's wild. It's wild, but yeah. it's definitely there, and it's definitely a resource and an asset if you can learn how to use it properly. It absolutely is, and it's not just medical. Uh, there's so many resources that you can yeah. use with the VA, um, and, and you know when you're going to file a claim, if you are filing a claim, it's better to do it when you can remember it than. 10 years down the road when you're like, the hell did I do to get this cut of my arm anyways that they were talking about? Like, yeah, it's better to do it now. I know I was thankfully blessed to have a really good friend who was a service officer at the VA in Dallas. She's no longer there. She's in Germany now, but uh, she was like, just give me your medical record, Amanda, like stop messing around. And so I did. And she combed through it for me and, legitimately wrote down everything that was documented in my medical record that they would approve. 
And so I, I wrote that down on my claim. I didn't write anything extra. I didn't write anything less. I put exactly what she told me to based off what she saw in my medical record. And they gave me every one of them. Yeah. um, I was so thankful for that. My wife's aunt worked for the VA and she was like, bring me your medical record. I handed her my medical record. She put everything in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's surprising what they actually accept too. And yeah. even if you, even if you get the rating of zero to have that rating, you know, when I'm 80 years old, yeah. Hey, I'm starting to have issues with this. Oh yeah. It's documented. It's been documented mm-hmm. and you don't have to worry about it. Even if it says zero, they'll take care of that. Yeah. Yeah. And now that's, that's what a lot of people don't understand. Like you might not qualify for full VA healthcare, but if they give you even a 0% rating for whatever you are trying to put your claim in for, then they will take care of that ailment for the rest of your life. Even if yes. you don't get full or even partial medical coverage from that. Like, even if you get like 12 things and they're all rated at 0% as they progress and get worse, they'll still take care of those. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I wish they would have told me that when I was transitioning, when I was first getting out of active duty and you had to do tap class, Ugh. that was a joke. Like none of us like tap class. Like, the, I could have gone on Google and gotten all that information in 10 minutes. And I had to sit through that class for like three days for a week. And they made you wear like, business clothes yeah you didn't get to wear your uniform and be comfortable you had to wear like and none of us are used to wearing business clothes and no and it didn't help you they didn't jump start you on anything they just left you with more questions yeah it was the dumbest class and then like i don't know my top class was always pushing for the dav go to the dav go to the dav go to the dav and i'm like what is the dav gonna do for me Like, they didn't really tell you what they were going to do. They just kept saying, like, when you get out, go to the DAV. And I'm like, oh, man, is this TAPS class sponsored by the DAV? I don't know. It must have been. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm like, mm, I don't think I'm going to go to the DAV. I barely know what's going on. Like, trying to even live and eat. Like, the last thing I'm trying to do is go to the DAV. And, uh, yeah, it, TAPS is not beneficial. And that's... No. That's been proven time and time again. Like they need a better system. Definitely. Definitely. All right, Jason. So if our viewers wanted to continue this conversation or if they just needed someone to reach out to, where can they find you? I am actually on TikTok and I make a lot of, I make a lot of videos. Some of them stupid and funny. Some of them are about, Hey, mental health. So I make a lot of those. You can find me on Facebook uh saving your six and then i have an instagram but i don't remember what my name is on instagram. <laughs> but if you find my facebook it's linked in there all right um and i would also like to tell anybody you know i'd rather hear from you at three o'clock in the morning for six hours than to read another obituary about yeah. another veteran yep absolutely That is so true. All right. Well, we have had a great discussion with you today. We appreciate you taking the time and telling your stories. Absolutely. I enjoy, I enjoy things like this. Uh, I mean, let's see if you can all, you know, 22 with a semicolon. 
Yes. Yep. That's a beautiful tattoo. They did great work. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm open. I'm proud about it. Um, I know I've helped people before and I, I don't, I'm not out there like searching, but people come by later and they're like, dude, you know, when you posted this, you, you really hit me at a time. It's like, really? Like, your life's great. (laughs) It's one of those things though, that like when people don't want to listen and you want to shove something down their throat, it's not going to help. Or if people don't think that they need to hear things, they're not going to listen to you. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter. You could reach out to every single veteran in this country and talk to every single one of them individually on a one-by-one basis. But if they don't want it or don't think they need it, then you're wasting your time and theirs. And, And that's, that's evident even in some of these rehabs. And I say that because there are people that commit suicide in the rehabs and it's like, they're there. So obviously they weren't ready to fight those demons and they gave into those demons. Yeah. And that's one of the hardest decisions to make is to fight the demons. It is. Um, Either you either live on the side where you ignore them and you do things to keep them pushed away or you live on the side where you can't take them anymore and you're contemplating being part of the, the lost battle of 22. One of the until you're ready to actually open that door and fight them, you're going to be on one side or the other. Yeah. One of the hardest lessons I had to learn a lot of people are under the assumption that they are PTSD. You know, I got PTSD, so I, 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 I'm a PTSD person. No, no, you're not. You are you. You just happen to have PTSD. PTSD does not define you. Your mental health issues do not define you. Correct. Be yourself. And uh, I I really push for that. I I just, I feel, I, I feel like when I run into people, I'm amazed by how many of them are defined by their illness and not, by who they are. And yeah. I, I take a look. I was that way. Got PTSD. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a crazy person. I'm a crazy. No, I'm not. I'm just me. I'm a goofball, but Hey, I have this. Right. Yeah. Some shit. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Own it. Yeah. Own it. <laughs> Schwartz Davidson law is a Texas based veteran friendly law firm. Credit and debt is a big game and one rigged for you to lose. The system's designed to keep you in it, spending money and juggling different types of accounts so lenders feel more comfortable lending you money. Worse credit equals worse rates, and there's no shortage of companies trying to collect. Negative reporting is an attempt to collect a debt. So what happens when a debt collector or credit bureau makes a mistake? What happens when they refuse to fix it? That's when it's time to lawyer up with Schwartz-Davidson Law. Call the folks who started in credit restoration, got a law degree, and have been holding the credit bureau's feet to the fire to protect consumers and help you take hold of your financial future instead of letting the anxiety of it run you. How do you get a debt collector to stop calling? Let them know you've got an attorney. How do you get the best deal on a settlement? With an attorney. 
You don't have to break the bank to fix your credit or deal with debt collectors. Contact the attorneys at Schwartz-Davidson Law for a free consultation and let us go to battle for you. We're here when you need us. Amber, do you want to talk a little bit about the charity we've chosen to support this episode? Yes, I do, Amanda. And again, Jason, um, on behalf of myself and Amanda's Veterans Drinking Vodka, we truly appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us. I know that you are at a point where it's good for you to talk about it. And sometimes it's not always easy to talk about the bad things. No, and not so, thank you for coming on. Not a problem. And so the reason why Amanda and I started this podcast was to bring about mental health awareness in veterans. And we have chosen Till Valhalla Project um, and their mission to support as well as the Fallen Outdoors. They are a nationwide organization that takes veterans on hunting and fishing trips. You can go to their website, punch in your information and get hooked up with other veterans and go out on a on a trip and and see where you can connect and and have those resources in order for us to support the Tilt project and the Fallen Outdoors. We have a merch store which you can purchase veterans drinking vodka hoodies, t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, tank tops, coffee cups, face masks. And we also have koozies and stickers that you have to reach out directly to Amanda and me. And how can they find us, Amanda? Well, if you would like a koozie or a sticker, or you would like to contact Amber or myself for any reason at all, you can contact us at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Veterans Drinking Vodka. Or you can email us directly at veteransdrinkingvodka at gmail.com. Like Amanda said, please reach out if you need someone to talk to or if you are interested in being a guest on our podcast and telling your story. You can send us an email or a direct message on any of the social media platforms. If you like our podcast, subscribe on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, Amazon, or wherever you choose to listen to your podcasts. Also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. It helps with podcast algorithms so that the stories that we are telling and the veterans that we are talking to can be heard by more veterans and our message can get a further reach. Also, if you are interested in the exclusive uncut versions of our podcast, they can be found via video on YouTube at Veterans Drinking Vodka. You can also join us every Sunday for Veterans After Hours via Zoom. We start that at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. We are hanging out, telling stories, sharing resources, and meeting new friends. We do have to put out the disclaimer that it is a live networking event, and we do invite civilian, active duty, military personnel, or veterans but when you put a bunch of veterans together in a live networking event, we have no idea what's going to be said or what's going to happen. Yes. So we do advise you to enter at your own risk. <laughs> yes, Jason, there's a halo. There's, there, there's definitely a halo over all of our heads. <laughs> Absolutely. We are all angels and we are loved in our own special ways. Yes. Um, but again, the reason why Amanda and I started this podcast was to reach out to veterans, to hear your stories, to share your stories, and to help each other and bring about the awareness 
of the fact that 22 veterans kill themselves every day and 22 is 22 too many. One is too many. And you are never alone. Veterans Drinking Podcast. Cheers. <laughs>